0: Last week we talked about um, kind of the beginning of the church, this kind of epic um, moment in the church when the Holy Spirit falls and how it was kind of a throwback moment to some big points in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai when the fire and the wind fell on the mountain. Um, It was kind of throwing back to that in the upper room when the fire and the wind fell on the apostles. And we went back to... um, the Tower of Babel and how we had this moment when everybody was in one accord in one place and because they weren't seeking after God God scattered the languages and then we have this point in the upper room where we get people to come in together uh, around the right things and instead of scattering the languages God starts to bring them back together they come out of the upper room and they're preaching to people of all different languages and everybody's hearing it in their own language so there's almost this like reversal of the Tower of Babel so we get this moment that goes backwards in time to these other two Moments, And then it also kind of looks forward in time because it happens on the Shavuot. We talked about how that was the festival of first fruits where they would take the very first things to get ripened in the harvest and they would bring them in and have a festival. And, and the way things tasted and the amount of first fruits they got indicated how awesome the harvest was going to be. And so when the Holy Spirit fell, it kind of serves as a first fruit or a taste or a sampling of what we have to look forward to. And so we're always in this place of, of having the Holy Spirit and having this awesome thing, but knowing that there's more and always longing for more, longing for the day when we have real justice and uh, when things are made right. And so this week is kind of our first real story after that. And it kind of indicates like a, like a what did they do after this big colossal moment? And does anybody hear like big church camp people when they were young? Anybody do kind of do church camp? Yeah, a couple. Yeah, um, I went to a couple when I was young. Did you ever experience the crash afterwards? Like when you come home and you know, very first thing you do is burn all your secular CDs. I'm done with that life, and you tear off the you tear all the bikini posters off. Maybe that was me, but you tear off. You know, you, and uh, right, and you're totally changed. I'm not going to be that way anymore. Then, like three weeks later, you're back at Walmart buying the new. You know. Twisted Sister CD or whatever. This is I just dated myself. Um, so, in fact, in the 90s, anybody remember Promise Keepers? That you know, big thing. When you went to Promise Keepers, they actually gave you an envelope, and it was dated for like three weeks in advance. Um, and you weren't supposed to open it until it said like three weeks from now. And of course, I had ADD, so I had to open it immediately and find out what they were trying to sell me three weeks from now. And it was always a uh, they, they saw ahead. They were like, right about now, you should be crashing from the from the conference you just went to three weeks ago. Like they knew it was coming. And so, what we get to see here today is, did they crash? Did the apostle? Did this? Did this movement go away? Was there like a a crash afterwards? Because this is a huge, colossal, like mountaintop experience on the day of Pentecost. And then this happened. We know this has been a while because at the end of chapter three, it tells us that they were meeting house to house and and in the temple daily, and they were breaking bread together. So it, we have, we've had time to establish a little bit of a rhythm in the church. They've kind of got a thing going. And then on this day, Peter and John are going to the temple. And so, uh, as we read in our reading today, they're, they're walking to the temple, and this beggar catches their eye. And they stop for a minute. They have this interaction with this beggar, and, and Peter has this kind of famous saying, gold and silver, have I none, but what I give, what I do have I give to you. And they tell him to rise and walk, and he's healed. And they walk in, and everybody recognizes this guy. Um, And we've actually learned from some of our homeless work we've done at Redemption Church in Olathe that um, a lot of times beggars like that are very territorial. They kind of have their corner, and they protect it. And so it's likely that people would have seen this guy every single day going to the temple. And they recognize that this is the guy that's now walking and leaping and praising God with Peter and John. So the people react and, and Peter kind of notices this reaction and has this big sermon that he preaches to them. And the chapter just kind of cuts off and I actually was tempted to go into chapter 4 because he does—he actually finishes the sermon in chapter 4 and we find out that like 5,000 people came to Jesus through this whole interaction. But I decided to stick with chapter 3 and it's because chapter 3 really, or really kind of has two big things it pulls out. Number one, it pulls out one of the kind of quintessential tensions of the Christian faith, and I said we were going to do that through Acts, we're going to find these tensions that exist in the Christian faith, these things where we kind of are constantly pulled in two opposite directions and we're kind of that focal point. The church is a place of tension. It's a place where two kingdoms collide, a heavenly kingdom and an earthly kingdom, and the church is where they meet. And so we're constantly in a, in a place of tension between kind of two realities and one of those tensions exists in this chapter, so we're going to pull that out. And then we're also going to talk about really probably one of the most fundamental issues in our faith system in Christianity. Um, so we're going to get to that. But let's start with this tension. This tension that's, that's here, let's go ahead and go to the next slide. This tension that's here is, uh, is between, and, and the chapter kind of splits up real cleanly um, on this, is between this interaction with this beggar and this interaction with this crowd. You can go ahead and click a couple more times, I think. Um, And what we see is Peter and John walking in, and something about this beggar grabs their eye. And they have this interchange with this guy, um, which, when you think about what's happening, is a little bit strange. Peter is the head of a giant movement that's happening now and really had every right to say, you know, I'm... I had a lot going on. I, you know, I'm, in, I'm kind of in charge of this big thing. You know, I need to get into the temple and engage in the discussion, the debate, and what's going on. And he stops in the middle of this movement and just and has this exchange with this one beggar. And then he gets inside, and everything kind of changes. And he has this. He sees this entire crowd, and he responds to the crowd. And what's ironic is the way he responds to the crowd is with singular language. He's like, you guys did this. You guys crucified Jesus. You guys, you know, uh, rejected the King of Glory. And I always worried about that one guy that's like, hey, I was on vacation last week. I have no idea what's happening. Why are you lumping me in with everybody else? I don't even know what's going on right now. And, but, he, but Peter, he kind of responds to this crowd as a collective, as like one thing. And so this is the tension. This is one of the tensions inside Christianity. Let's click one more. Is the, is the tension between the individual... And the collective. And this is all through the scripture. The scripture is about individuals. This is something the Reformation kind of brought back out for us, something that had kind of gotten lost. Is the scripture is about us individually. It's about our hearts. It's about and and part of the Christian life is realizing that it was my sins, my sins that put Jesus on the cross. Not just sin, this big grand concept, but my sins that Jesus died for. And a huge part of, part of salvation is individual. It's about the person. And the, and the Old Testament does this. It'll, like we're talking about the story of God, and it will zoom in on a person and just follow this person. And one of, the, one of the things we have to be careful of is sometimes we look at everything in this person's life and we just assume that's the way God works with people. And so we want to see those exact same things in our life, and we forget that there was tons of people in the story at this point and God had interactions with all of them, and for some reason we just zoomed in on this one guy's story, which is interesting, but the Bible, it, it values the individual. One of my favorite chapters, and it's the most boring read in the whole Bible, so don't go looking for it for a good read, but it's in Nehemiah. He takes a whole chapter after they re- rebuild the wall to list everybody that participated. And so he's just like, and then there was Greg, and he, he rebuilt the wall out in front of his house. And next to Greg, there was Bob. And Bob and his family rebuilt the wall in front of his house. And then there was Smith. And Smith and his family rebuilt the wall in front of his house. This is for a whole chapter until he gets all the way around the wall. And it's a terrible read. It's absolutely boring. And it's one of those things that you skip when you actually come to it. You kind of scan it. And, nope, that's just a list. And you move on. But I cling to this chapter because Nehemiah could have just said, God, just bless everybody that worked on the wall. He could have just done that. He could have just wrapped them all up into one big prayer. But he didn't. He named them. He valued each person and said, that guy. And at the end of the chapter, he says, God, remember them for all the work they've done. I've kind of clung to that. That's one of the things I do with our church. I pray, for, I pray for every single one of you by name every week. And I'm not a prayer warrior. I'm not good at it. I wish I was. I love people who pray well. And I, and sometimes all you get is your name read. Like, Sometimes that's all I can pull off is I just read everybody's name in the church and I say, God, bless our church. Each one of those people, just give them a blessing this week. But I believe that God values us individually, values the name. He values who we are. That's important. And something in this interaction that Peter has, he values one beggar. He zeroes in on one guy. But on the flip side of that is the Bible also talks about collective. This is huge. most of the prophets are talking to nations. Like they occasionally talk to a king, but usually they're like, and to Tyre and Zidon, I say this, you know, and what about that one good guy in Tyre, that one nice guy, you know, who's got to feel terrible that his entire nation is being cursed, you know. But we, we follow the nation of Israel and most of the promises of the Old Testament are about a nation of Israel and this, this like collective group. Of people. And when you know, one of our favorite verses, Matthew twenty five, where Jesus says, When you do this in the least of my brethren, you do it under me, that passage starts with Jesus saying he calls together all the nations. And he separates the goat nations from the sheep nations. This isn't even talking about individuals. This is talking about nations. And he's talking to a nation the way you treated me when I was poor, the way you treated me when I was hungry, when I was in prison. It's actually some scary stuff to think our nation is Blessed or not blessed by God based on how they do those things. The Bible is really focused on the on the collective. In in Revelation, Jesus talks to churches, not people. He says to the church that's at Philadelphia, I say this. He speaks to the entire church. And so we constantly live in this tension between our focus on the individual and our focus on collective groups. And we have to do that. Peter, Peter Hones in on both here, and we have to as a church. One of our problems as a church is we have a tendency to think of groups of people sometimes. Like when when we worked with the homeless, our when I started working with the homeless, it was it was kind of as a this is what I think Jesus would do. It was like a a service, like and I was kind of emotionally blocked off from it. But you know, this is one of those things we do. We're Christians, so this is what we do. And I was still pretty judgmental, honestly. Like, they came to church drunk almost every Sunday. And so there was part of me that was like, you're never going to get your life together if you don't stop drinking. Like, and I was, in my head, I didn't say this out loud. You know, I was serving them, but I was thinking, you've got to start working on your issues here, guys. You know, and, and just kind of being, and then one week, um, Greg came to church. And uh, when Greg came a little more drunk than usual, he was a little more obnoxious than usual and way more loud than usual. And so in the midst of the sermon, uh, Greg didn't like what was going on. He was like, I don't agree with that. And he had this really loud, booming voice. And so I escorted Greg out of the room. And we went outside so Greg could have a smoke and we could talk. And he was agitated that I asked him to leave. But we sat out in the parking lot. And something in our conversation that day, Greg started to open up. And he, said, uh, and he started to share his story with me. And I think it was almost 40 years before this day, Greg was driving home and he made a bad decision. He had had too much to drink and he decided to drive home drunk. And uh, and he drove when he shouldn't have and he hit a family. And a 12-year-old girl... When I told Esther I was going to tell this story, she said, you'll never get through it. 12-year-old girl flew out of the other car and bounced off of Greg's windshield. He watched her face hit his windshield. And she ricocheted over the car and died on the pavement behind him. And Greg pulled up his sleeve and he's got these ragged, ropey scars on his arm where he's tried to kill himself in the past and he's just never gotten it done. And Greg looked me in the eye and said, I've never been sober a day since unless I was in prison. And I couldn't blame him. From that day on, I couldn't judge homelessness the same way. Because now I had a name. Now I, and Greg made a mistake that I could have made. It was a stupid decision. It was wrong. But it wasn't evil. He wasn't trying to hurt anybody. He just made a bad decision that I could have made. And I look at Greg's life and I look at Greg's alcoholism and I wonder, would I do anything different? Could I do anything different? And so now when I look at homeless guys, I can't see homeless people. I see Greg. And I see Frank. And I see Randy. And I see White Hawk. And I see Mike. Sometimes we've got to break down the collectives and see people, individual people. The church needs to focus on individuals. When, when you can no longer see African-Americans, when you can see Betty and Samson, and you can see Ron and Stacy, and you can see individual people, there's now names and not just a collective group, racism starts to fall apart. So we have to focus on the individual. But at the same time, the church has to learn to focus on collectives. When you look at our society and there's collective groups of people that are being systemically oppressed... The church has to stand up and say that's not okay. And usually, what the church says, yeah, but I know that one guy who pulled himself up by his bootstraps and he got out of that system, and so it can be done. You know, we though that's when we like to zoom in on an, on an individual and, and forget that our society is hurting a collective group of people. And the church should be the one at the forefront of some of those movements, saying this is not okay. This is a collective group that is just systematically being oppressed. And the church should be the one saying that's not all right. And so we're constantly pulling in this tension between the individual, which we have to highlight, and these collective groups that we have to protect and defend and, and stand up for and have solidarity with. And so it's a tension that will always be there And the church. And Peter, Peter kind of navigates it in this passage, which is awesome. He kind of navigates between the individual and the collective. And I think the way he does it, and this is the main point we're going to talk about tonight, is by seeing by seeing. And it's something pretty big. Let's go to the next one. This is the power of seeing. At the beginning of his interaction with both of these people, with the beggar, it says that, uh, and fixing their eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. If you were to act this out, this would be a very awkward moment. It's like Peter's staring at him, like, and John is too, and they're looking at him. They say, look at me, look at me. And like it's this frozen moment of eye contact. And this is, I almost really honed in on this eye contact. Have you guys heard anything about these eye contact experiments that are a big thing right now? It started with this, uh, with this uh, sociological experiment, but then it expanded to this artist who did it. She sat in a, in a uh, um, uh, an art gallery, uh, uh, like the Nelson, and, and it was a living thing where she just sat in a chair and then there was a chair in front of her. And people would come and sit, and she would just look into their eyes. And most people couldn't last more than a couple minutes. Like, they're just not used to someone just looking into your eyes like that. And so people would just, like, start bawling. People would just cry. Like, from someone looking into their eyes, people would just break down. And so it's become a thing. Now There's you can actually go on YouTube and see them. They do these experiments where they'll go to places like the uh, like the Crossroads and stuff, and, and they'll just set up little things, and people will just come and, and try to make eye contact for four minutes, and then talk about what it does to him. And it's just like, we don't do that. Like, we, like eye contact is a weird thing. And, and there's this moment where Peter does this with this beggar. He's like, look at me. And, and we don't know what he sees. We don't know if, if Peter was looking for like a shred of faith in this guy. Like, maybe there's something in this guy that can respond to Jesus. Or if maybe it was just he wanted this guy to have dignity. Because beggars don't look you in the eyes. They don't. And so maybe he was like, no, 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 don't look down. Look up at, look at me. Like We don't know what happens. We just know something happens in this look that seems to set everything else off. And then when he walks in and the crowd has responding to this guy, it says, Peter saw it. That's what it says. It says, and when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. And this word saw is kind of interesting. I pulled it up. I pulled up the Greek and... About half the time it's, it's interpreted see or to see or have seen or things like that. But let's go to the next one. But about the other half the time it's the word know, to know. The same, same Greek word, Ido. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Not seeing the Scriptures. It's that same word, to see, to deeply, something that's deeper than just seeing with your eyes. Same Greek word, Ido. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic man, Rise, take up your bed and go to your house. But he answered said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. That's a spooky one. It's almost like Jesus saying, I don't even see you. Like, like, I don't know you. But Jesus knowing their... And it's used this way. This is in all four Gospels several times in each Gospel. Jesus knowing their thoughts. Said, what do you think? Why do you think evil in your heart? Seeing their thoughts, like knowing, there's a deep knowing. And so when Peter sees this crowd, it's more than just like he looked up and saw that everybody was shocked and was like, what's everybody so shocked about? He knew, he saw something in this moment, knew something in this moment was big. And that's what sets off the sermon he preaches. And this understanding of seeing is huge in the whole scripture. This is, a, this is a big one. This, the Bible talks about this concept, this, this having our eyes open a lot. And we're going to talk about some of it tonight. And one of the reasons I think it's such a big deal is because as humans, we are actually terrible at seeing. Very, very bad. Let's go to the next slide. There's a guy, uh, Dr. Stephen Novella. He's an academic neurologist for the um, for Yale School of Medicine. Um, did a, a he's got a book and a class um, that I've listened I listened to the audio on several times because it's fascinating um, called Your Deceptive Mind and what he did was he compiled a bunch of studies and statistics and data um, about how bad people are at seeing and remembering what they see and this whole class is just compiled data of of how untrustworthy. Our perception is which is shocking to most people because for the most part we trust ourselves we trust our own minds. like if we see something we believe we saw what we saw like and how could we not right and so he found that this is absolutely completely unreliable and the reason is we actually have two brains um, they figured out that humans have ultimately two brains they have the limbic cortex which is kind of the inner more primitive part of our brain it contains our emotions And our instincts, our hungers, our lusts, like all of those kind of more basic things are are housed in our limbic cortex. Then we have our cerebral cortex, which is the higher functions, mathematics and language and reasoning skills and logic is all in the cerebral cortex. And these two parts of our brain actually function independently of each other a lot of the times. And they think independently. It's why you can desperately want to lose weight and desperately want a donut It's because these two parts of your brain can both want something at the same time. They don't get along all the time. These two parts of our brains think differently. And when they're thinking alike, when they get along with each other, we get a little tiny shot of dopamine and it makes us feel good. We have this feel-good feeling that our brain is at peace. But when they don't get along, they um, have what we call cognitive dissonance. And it's because this inner part of our brain um, this limbic system houses um, our, our cognitive narrative is what they call it. Let's go to the next slide. It houses, okay, there's that, that one. Keep going. Um, it houses, there's a little nodule thing at the center of your limbic cortex. That they call your reality nodule. And it's, it's the thing that tells you if something's real or not, it's, that, that feels real. And it's why you can go to a magic show and watch the guy cut a lady in half and not call 911. Because all the data tells you murder just happened. like, And we should all get our phones out and call the police when that happens. And yet something in your brain goes, that was a good trick. That was awful. Awesome. That really looked real. Like, Because your, your reality nodule in your limbic system doesn't get aroused. Because it knows this is a magic show. It knows it's part of the deal. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't freak out. This is also why dreams happen. When you sleep, your, your reality nodule in your limbic system sleeps. And so that's why crazy things can happen in your dream and you think they're real. You think that it's, it's real because that part of your brain that tells you what's real and isn't is sleeping. And when it starts to wake up before you wake up, that's when you have uh, lucid dreams where you, you're dreaming but you know you're dreaming. That's because the reality nodule is waking up. And so this little part of your brain, it houses what they call your cognitive narrative. It, the way the world works, what things are real and what things aren't. And when the information in your cerebral cortex does not match up with the information in your cognitive narrative, you have what's called cognitive dissonance, and this is uncomfortable. They've proven that real cognitive dissonance has a physiological discomfort to it. Um, And the uh, so when you so let's let's use the example: if if you're standing and a pig flies by, and you're almost 100% positive it was a pig. Your, your cerebral cortex goes, dang, that was a pig. I'm pretty sure that was a pig. And your, your limbic cortex goes, pigs don't fly, pigs don't fly, pigs don't fly, pigs don't fly. Then it starts to panic a little bit. Like, that couldn't have been a pig because pigs don't fly. That doesn't, that doesn't match my narrative. And so your, your, you know, your uh, cerebral cortex goes, I mean, the data, the data shows pig. I don't know what to do. The data shows pig. And, and, and the, by now, the limbic cortex is screaming, pigs don't fly, pigs don't fly, pigs don't fly, pigs don't fly. Pigs don't fly. And the cerebral cortex goes, okay, okay, maybe it was an owl. And the limbic cortex goes, owls fly, owls owls totally fly. It could have been an owl, owls fly. And then everybody, okay, then it was an owl, it was an owl. And your brain will actually re-script the data to see an owl, and everybody gets, you get your dopamine, everybody gets along, everything goes back together. And this happens that fast. This happens really quickly. And there's a bunch of really fun data to support it. They did a study on thousands of people where they, had them watch a video and then they uh, at the end of the video they said what color dress was the lady in the video wearing 83 percent of people gave an answer there's no lady in the video there's not even a woman in the video 83 percent answer and they come up with colors and they can tell you where she was in the video and when they re-show them the video under lie detectors most of them think it's a different video their minds cannot be changed after that their brain scripts in a woman because what happens in the limbic cortex goes, he sure sounded confident when he asked they, the color of that dress. Like, he sounded like there was a woman. There was a woman. Like, that's the emotional center. is going, the way that guy sounded when he asked the question sounds like there must have been a woman in there. And the cerebral cortex is going, there's no woman data. I don't have any woman there. There's like, but he sure sounded sure about it. He really sounded like there was a woman. And the cerebral cortex says, well, okay, then maybe that, I, that's right. I did see a red dress in the corner. That's probably the woman. Oh, yeah, that was it. That was the woman. And the brain will... And from then on, you remember it. Even if they do a lie detector test, you saw a woman, even though there was no woman. Some of the times this has happened just in nature in, in Texas, um, they got a whole bombardment of calls, um, the military down there, over a bunch of people seeing a UFO at the same time. And, so they, and they were relatively credible. And so they, they were interviewing these people, and they were having them describe UFOs. Several of them drew it. And, and, they, and as they were comparing pictures and things, they noticed the only thing that was the same on all of them was where these lights were. There was these lights that matched, and they were different shapes and different everything, but there was these lights that matched on all of them. And so they did a search of the area, and some company was doing a, a marketing thing and launched flares into the air. And the flares, the pattern of the flares, matched where the lights were on every description. The, the people saw the flares, and their brains actually filled in all the other, that's what we call confabulation, when the brain actually creates data that's not even there. And so they got all different descriptions of the UFO. some of it long and skinny, some of it short and fat, but they all saw the flares. The flares matched on all of them. In 1942, I think, somewhere around World War um, II, it um, had to be after that actually, um, they launched 1,400 anti-aircraft missiles at what turned out to be a weather balloon. And when they debriefed all the guys that launched, they all saw attacks. They saw multiple planes. Everybody saw a barrage of planes coming, and they just launched everything they had. And it turns out it was a single uh, weather balloon that somebody saw. And obviously a lot of guys were responding to, he's launching, I'm launching, and everybody just started launching. 1,400 anti-aircraft missiles launched at nothing. But everybody swore they saw planes, like real planes in the air that they were shooting at. The brain was scripting things that weren't there. And the, the, these just go on and on and on. And some of it is, is obvious fun stuff. Like when I clap, you, um, the, the vision of me clapping gets there just a little bit before the sound. And up to 80 milliseconds, your brain can actually push those two things together and make it sound like they're happening simultaneously. But if you go one step farther than that, your brain can't pull them together anymore, and you'll see the difference between the sound and the and the vision, but if you take that one step closer, obviously that one step doesn't make that much of a difference. It's just there's a breakover point at which the brain can no longer force the two things together, and so it so what you're getting is false. You're getting that they're happening at the same time, and they're not. Just the brain decides to squeeze them together, and there's tons of this stuff. And so this so Dr. Novella has figured out that we're terrible at perceiving. We don't actually see anything we think we see. Our brain is actually capable of seeing things that aren't there and not seeing things that are there. This goes even further when we talk about remembering. We talk about recording and recall. We think that our memories are just kind of a recording device, this passive device that captures information and hangs on to it so that we recall it when we want. And they found out this is not at all true. In fact, every single time you remember something, you bring something back up to remember it, it activates the, the memory part of your brain. So you're actually remembering it again through the recall. And when data changes, when you change little elements of the data, you actually remember it differently, and that becomes part of the memory. Over time, you can actually create a memory that's not even there. And they've done this with a lot of things, um, the scariest of which was there was these two in 1988. There was a book called uh, The Courage to Heal, um, Bell and Davis I can't remember the first them, I think uh, Ellen Bell and Laura Davis um, wrote this book called Courage to Heal and they had been noticing they were uh, psychiatrists and they had been noticing in their research that almost everybody they were uh, doing um, therapy with had been abused as a child um, almost universally and so they started really digging in and, and some of the people they had um, done, done uh, counseling with uh, it was it was severe, and they were able to actually press charges, and men went to prison. Um, and then their data got so overwhelming that it became an anomaly, that it just seemed unrealistic that this many people had gone through this traumatic of abuse. And so they st- so other people started coming in and looking at it, and they found that some of the men who were being accused had rock solid alibis, like not even in the country. And so they started looking deeper, and what was unfortunate, they found that these that Unwittingly, they weren't doing it on purpose, they, but they were, because they were hunting for something, they were actually planting memories of abuse in these people. And they were actually uncovering things by guiding them through this deep hypnosis and some of these deep forms of therapy and, and, and making them remember an abuse that didn't happen and couldn't have happened because some of these people that were supposedly participating in the abuse weren't even in the country at the time and so they, they found out that and so they had to release a bunch of people from prison and, and found out and the worst part of this entire story is even once they got the men free and, everything and, and they undid it all of these women had to live with the trauma of abuse there was no difference between them and somebody who was actually abused they could remember it it was in them like a memory that they then had to get therapy for because this was planted in them like a real memory and it was so deep so our memories are not actually these passive recording devices that can just grab data and, and hang on to it forever our recall is actually quite terrible and so what does all this mean in our passage today Peter shows something that I think is, is crucial as a Christian because we are terrible at seeing we actually are Humans are terrible at seeing. We're terrible at understanding. We're terrible at at remembering. And so, one of the things that has to happen as a Christian is the Holy Spirit has to open up our eyes. We are absolutely blind. And a big part of being a Christian is having our eyes opened. Let's go to the next slide. Jesus says it this way And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing, you will hear. But shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have been closed lest they should see with their ears and hear with their eyes lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear part of being a Christian And one of the things that Peter does here is he shows what I think is a gift of the Holy Spirit. He shows a vision that most of us don't have. He had every right to be too busy to talk to a beggar. And I'm sure Jerusalem was packed, was full of beggars. Actually, we find out in Acts and not long that they were actually in a famine and there was a ton of poor people in Jerusalem at the time. So what is it about this one guy that grabs Peter's attention? And likewise, Peter could have said, We just we just healed a lame guy. Like God has obviously anointed us to heal lame guys. Let's go find more lame guys. Forget that crowd. They can all walk. They're they're healthy. We need to hone in on this thing. Like this awesome thing happened. We need to like we need to jump on this bandwagon. This is it. And yet somehow Peter knows that this crowd is an important moment to go into the temple and talk to this crowd. Something happens. He sees more. I think this is huge in ministry because sometimes as Christians we we tend to have kind of a bulldozer approach. Like once we kind of learn this is how you witness to somebody, we do it every single person we meet. You know, Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. You know, like we just, we kind of script it and it's a, and it's, you know, we just kind of force our way in the door. And being a witness for Jesus is actually way more finesse. It's knowing when to take a bullhorn and stand on the corner and scream and when to ask God if He wants to go have a beer and sit and say, What's going on in your world? and taking a slow, more subtle approach. And we can only know how to do that if, gee, if the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to that. We're formula people, we like a formula. We like this is how it works, this is what you do. You start, you know, you guys remember the tracks back in the day, like every like those. Those things were supposed to just walk you through, man. Anybody you talk to, you should be able to just open this tract and it'll just walk you through how to get them saved. Unfortunately, that doesn't work. We don't live in that kind of world. We live in a very complicated world. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. But more than that, more than just having the Holy Spirit open our eyes for ministry, we need Him to open our eyes just to get in the door. Because ultimately, you can't logic your way into Christianity you can't argue your way in. You can't lay out a, a solid enough case for it to make sense. If you try to rationally explain church to people, it sounds crazy. The Bible says it sounds like foolishness to those that aren't part of it. Because your eyes aren't open. And if you're looking with human eyes, it sounds crazy. It just doesn't even sound... Yeah, we all we sing songs together. We all face a screen and sing songs and then we listen to a guy talk for 45 minutes which no grown-ups that aren't Christians do anymore. Like, once you're done with school, lectures are over. Like, we don't do that anymore. Like, who wants to sit and listen to somebody talk for way too long? And then we all dunk bread and juice and eat it and sing another song. Like, but when your eyes are open, you see something totally different. Like, you see something totally different. I gather with people who love me. And we're encouraged together. We gather around a common teaching and a common table. And it draws us together as people. And I don't feel alone. It gives me something to belong to and something to believe in. And it's a whole different thing when your eyes have been opened. We need our eyes open just to get in the door. No matter what it is, whether it's doing ministry, whether it's a sin pattern, whether it's something in your life that needs to change, you can't white knuckle it until you quit. The Holy Spirit has to open your eyes, and when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, and you're like, "You know, I've been doing this thing. That's wrong. It's just, you just don't want to do it anymore." When, it's, when the Holy Spirit does it and opens your eyes, it's it's done. So to go back to our passage, Peter, he shows a vision here, and in our time and response, this is what I want you to think about. He shows an ability to see that I think we need to pray for. We I mean, need to pray that to the Holy Spirit would open our eyes, would open up our eyes, because when 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 He does, you look at the world different. And our eyes are untrustworthy. Our eyes are bad. They've pretty much proven that. Our perception's terrible. Our remembering is terrible. And what's ironic is we is it's not just about seeing more. It's definitely not about seeing more because Adam and Eve, when they fell, I think I've actually got the passage up here. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it and also gave to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. Chapter 3 of the story we're already talking about vision. Like This is all the way through. And their eyes are open. They see more. And it destroys them. It really destroys everything. So it's not about just seeing more. It's about seeing what God wants us to see. It's about seeing through His eyes. It's about seeing through the cross, like the cross being the goggles that we use to view the world. And when we do that, we see everything different. We see our money different. We see our vocation different. We see our friends different. We see our our possessions and, and the and the things that have value different. We see other races different. We see the poor different. We see the rich different. We see our politics different. And we see our church different. When we look at things with the Holy Spirit's eyes, the whole world looks different. And that needs to be our prayer. God, open our eyes so we can see each other better, so we can see this area better so we can so we can see really see the way we were supposed to